an offering to God. Welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard each day and not be satisfied with just a little empty religion instead of giving God our best. As our series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from folks who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and her message. Hey, thanks for joining us today. can you expect today? Well, we're going to wrap up our five-part series, a seminar series, The Highest Form of Service, with a look at an acceptable offering to God. What would that be? Also, we'll take a look at two of the great hymns of Elizabeth's life. Do you appreciate the great hymns of the faith? Well, then stay tuned for The Sands of Time Are Sinking and Oh, Teach Me What It Meaneth, a good introduction to these great old hymns. Well, today we hear from Jim Elliott himself, a message on the resurrection. Also, we'll hear about one of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation current projects. First, though, let's wrap up our seminar series, The Highest Form of Service, with an acceptable offering to God. Hey, who's in charge of this present moment? Are we? How about a simple heart? That's also a topic that Elizabeth deals with in an acceptable offering to God. I want you to think about two things. The present moment is number one, and a simple heart. The present moment. Now, who exactly is in charge of this present moment? There's a sense, of course, in which I am but it's very small by comparison with the sense that we have, which we know to be perfectly true, that God is totally in charge of every moment of every day. Amy Carmichael wrote a little poem, I see thee thread the minutes of my hours. I love that idea. God is threading the minutes of my hours. He knows what each minute holds and what the next minute is going to hold. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. I believe it was my father that was the one who wrote that. My father was an editor and a writer and had a little magazine, and I haven't been able to find that there was any other source. If someone can correct me, please do, but uh, that's a wonderful, wonderfully peace-giving assurance, isn't it? We don't know what the future holds. We don't know whether we're going to go home, get home this afternoon or whether we're going to get to California this evening or what. But God does. So the present moment is the moment which God has given to me now. This is what I have. I don't have any moment that's past. That belongs to God. I don't have any moment in the future. God is already there. Did you ever stop to think about that? With him, there is no time. He is the eternal, the infinite. And so God is already in the future. He knows exactly what's going to happen because he's in charge of that moment. Is your attitude one of acceptance or of dissatisfaction? This morning, were you dissatisfied with your wardrobe, shall we say? Just for one little question. Probably the majority of us women 
are dissatisfied because we have too many things and you don't know which one to pick out. And of course, who's looking? You know, who cares? Is there anybody in this room that could possibly remember what so-and-so had on last Tuesday? And do you think anybody's gonna remember what you had on? They're not going to. We are, I was given a great deal of peace when I was a college student because I was very worried about my looks. And an older friend, she was three years older than I, and when you're 17 or 18 years old, you know, three years is a very big difference. And so I looked up to this woman as a spiritual example. She was a very beautiful woman, but I was complaining to her about my looks or something or my hairdo or who knows what. And she just sort of put her hand on my shoulder and she said, who's looking? <laughs> we think that we're so noticeable. <laughs> but when it comes to that wardrobe, when you buy a new dress, or a new skirt, or a new pair of breeches, do you get rid of the old one? Well, if you don't, of course, your closet is getting so jammed that you can hardly get anything in it or out of it. So one way of simplifying your life and clarifying things and making your life easier for, easier for yourself is to just get rid of things. Well, what's this got to do with spiritual things? I think it has a great deal to do with it. There's a, a verse of a hymn. The hymn begins, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind. And one stanza says, Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Our ordered lives. Dissatisfaction with, your, with what you possess, dissatisfaction with where you live or where you work, dissatisfaction with how you look in the mirror or how much you weighed the last time you got on the scales. There are things we can do something about and there are things we can't do anything about. But what is God saying to you in this moment, now? What is he teaching you now? And let's remember that through every event that crosses my will or my preferences, here's the will of God, and here is my will. And whenever the will of God crosses the will of man, somebody has to die. So when your preference is not honored, when your opinion is not listened to, when plans fall apart and you're disappointed about something, is he teaching you? Are you willing to be meek enough to be teachable? I do believe that meekness means teachability. Jesus said, come to me, you who are tired and overburdened, and I will give you rest. But there are three things you have to do you want that rest. Number one is to come to him. Number two is to take his yoke upon you. And a yoke is heavy. And a yoke forces you to move in harmony with the other one who is yoked. And I believe that Jesus is using the metaphor of a double ox yoke, where two oxen are forced to move in harmony by this heavy wooden yoke that's on the back of their necks. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And remember, he takes the other end of it, the other side. 
and learn of me. Come, take my yoke, learn. For I, he says, am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus was gentle and humble in heart. Don't ever confuse meekness with weakness. There's a world of difference. Teachability. It is here in this present moment that God wants to sanctify you. And what is God's object in our lives? It's to make us holy. Here's a whole room full of women. If God were to be allowed by our will and our submission and our surrender to him to make every one of us in this room holy, it would transform the state of Iowa. There would be just an astonishing change. But it's a very laborious process, isn't it, to be made holy. Do you want to be holy? I ask you that this afternoon. Is it your desire to be like Jesus? Well, it is in this moment that sanctification happens. Here is where God is teaching us. Now, how is he teaching us? He is teaching us in every event of our lives, in every responsibility that we have. Now, here's a woman who didn't really like to do laundry. She didn't think that was very much fun. And she says, it has revolutionized my life to see myself as a creator in my home and to strive for beauty, to elevate the daily tasks into acts of worship. And this is a concept which has so deeply influenced my own life. It took me many, many years before I understood it. And I am ashamed to think how slowly I'm learning it. But I am learning that literally everything in my life, every task, every responsibility, is meant to be an offering to God, an act of worship. When I peel an onion, when I clean the bathroom, when I go to the grocery store, which I don't do very often because I have a wonderful husband who does most of that for me. Uh, when I sit at my computer, which is probably the next to the hardest work I do, the writing, these are meant to be offerings to Jesus Christ. And so this woman says, to elevate the daily tasks into acts of worship, this includes all the senses, smell, taste, touch, sound, and hearing, and so much beauty. Somehow, she says, I had got it in my head that I just had to love laundry for laundry's sake. And if I could not will myself to love it, then I was failing the Lord. Now, you're looking at a woman who is one of those really weird freaks who really loves housework. Because to me, housework is so easy compared with sitting down and, and writing. When I do housework, I know exactly what to do. I know how to do it. I know how long it's going to take. And I know what the results are going to be. Never mind that nobody's ever going to notice the results. They will only notice it if you don't do it, right? But this woman was thinking that she had to learn to love the laundry for the laundry's sake and I could not will myself to love it, then I must be failing the Lord. But now, she says, I see that there is always opportunity to redeem tasks that bring me little joy in and of themselves by being creative and seeing life as art. 
or as the challenge of sacramental living. Now there's a word that's going to stop some of you cold and you'll think, what on earth is she talking about? In the broad sense, a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. And all of us, I would assume, are familiar with what we call the sacrament of communion. You have bread and you have wine, or grape juice, depending on what church you go to. And we all know that those are visible signs, visible, tangible, edible signs of an invisible reality, the tremendous truth of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. But if you can just try to realize that all of life is meant to be a visible sign of an invisible reality. Who I am, what I am, what I do, what I believe, these are revelations of an invisible reality. Well, that wraps up our seminar series, just a five-part series, The Highest Form of Service, An Acceptable Offering to God. Later on, we'll be hearing about uh, a current project with the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation that you might not uh, know about. Right now, though, let's hear from Jim Elliott himself. Have you ever heard his voice? This is a message about the resurrection as he speaks directly to those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. And that very same sure promise of David that was given to Christ is given to you, extended through the Apostle Paul and the great word of God. Oh, will you not receive tonight some of the blessings that come from Christ's work in that he raised from the dead and now sits at God's right hand forever incorruptible, forever eternal, forever glorious, the great, high, mighty majesty that he is. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon his brow and tonight he extends to you the grace of incorruption. He extends to you the offer of immortality in that body which he will perfect in which he will make himself known, will you but submit to him tonight? Yea, for has not the scripture said that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose? For whom he foreknew, then he foreordained to become conformed to the image of his Son. And if his Son is incorruptible, then there is incorruption for you. Because I live, you shall live also. Missionary and Evangelist, Jim Elliott. Later on, a look at a current project with the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation. Now, right now, though, let's hear about two old hymns of the faith. Do you appreciate them? Elizabeth did. Uh, they were a part of her early years. She'll hear from a listener, though, annoyed with her uh, opening remarks that you hear so much on uh, Gateway to Joy. Here's a look at two old hymns of the faith, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, and O oh, Teach Me What It Meaneth. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you again today about the great hymns of my life. A listener from Michigan wrote, I want to write to you about an annoyance I have had with you. The way you slowly and deliberately begin each broadcast with those same words, you are loved with an everlasting love, that's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Well, I want to tell you this story, she says. Two months ago, life took a tragic turn. 
My brother, his wife, and baby were all killed in a car accident. He was 27. He had drawn many to Christ. He was a quiet, gentle man. Hundreds of his students came to the funeral. In his Bible, I found a quotation from your husband, Jim. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This letter is an expression of a change of heart. Thank you for daily repeating reassuring words of God's everlasting love. They bring strength and comfort to me. I've mentioned many times the importance of hymns in my growing up years. We were taught to sing. Our whole family sang every morning after breakfast before my father read the Bible and we prayed. We sang on Sunday evenings. We would sing around the piano. We would have groups of people come in. We did a lot of singing of hymns. And I'm very grateful for the fact that many of those hymns are a part of my life, a part of my consciousness, a part of my prayers, a very important part of my prayers. And I do want to uh, reiterate again how helpful I find hymns to be when I'm not quite sure how to phrase my prayers. Just open an old hymn book. You'll be amazed at how many hymns really are prayers. And one of my very favorite hymns is often called Samuel Rutherford's hymn. It was actually put into poetry by Annie R. Cousin, but the words were taken from the last words of Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish preacher born in 1600 and died in 1661. When he was a little boy, about three or four years old, Samuel Rutherford fell into a well. Friends ran for help, when they came back, they found him seated on a knoll, cold and dripping, but uninjured. They asked, how did you get out of the well? A bonny white man came and drew me out of the well, he said. There seemed to be no explanation other than an angel. He had terrible suffering in his life. For one thing, his wife was extremely ill and through her suffering, his shepherd's heart was developed. He became a man of very deep sympathy. If you can get your hands on the letters of Samuel Rutherford, you will find dozens, hundreds of letters dealing with the subject of suffering, personal letters written to people who were suffering. The words of the first stanza are these, the sands of time are sinking using the metaphor there of an hourglass. The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And I hope that perhaps some of you older folks who are listening to me, perhaps people who are in wheelchairs, nursing homes, alone at home, feeling very lonely, some of you practically helpless. I hope that you will be encouraged by this thought that the sands of time are sinking. It's not a bad thought, is it, as we get older, to realize that this life will be over and the summer morn I've sighed for, the fair, sweet morn awakes. 
then here's one of my favorite stanzas. I can't read them all because there are 21 stanzas to this hymn. You won't find 21 in any hymn book, but I have them at home. The third stanza, according to the selection in this hymn book, begins, O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. I remember so vividly when I had fallen in love with Jim Elliott back as a college student. I was struggling to surrender my love for him, which had no response, so far as I knew, in his heart to God and to come to a place of total self-abandonment as regards the question of marriage. I was trying to learn that the love of Christ is all I need. And this verse became very powerful to me then. Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand. And then, as those of you who have read my book, Passion and Purity, know, Jim did, just before I graduated, confess his love for me. And there began a period of five and a half years of waiting on God as to whether or not God wanted us to be married. We were not engaged. And during that time, in one of Jim's letters, he had visited a man who raised, I think it was gladiolas. And the man had told him about how he put the bulbs of the gladiolas in darkness in his basement. And it was then that the words of another stanza of this hymn came to mean a great deal more to Jim than they had before, and he put those words in his letter. But flowers need night's cool darkness, the moonlight and the dew. So Christ, from one who loved it, his shining oft withdrew. And then for cause of absence, my troubled soul I scanned. But glory shadeless shineth in Emmanuel's land. Jim and I were going through what seemed to us a period of darkness. And Jim was just reminding me that God was in charge of that darkness as well. Flowers need night's cool darkness. We need those times when it seems as though Christ has withdrawn his shining. And then if we begin to look inside of ourselves and indulge in a lot of fretful and anxious introspection, wondering if our lack of spiritual feelings is due to some sin, something that has caused a breach between us and our Lord, let's remember that that is not always the reason. Christ, from one who loved it, his shining oft withdrew for the same reason that flowers for their full development have to have darkness. And then there's another hymn. If you happen to have the InterVarsity hymnal, the original InterVarsity hymnal, which I don't suppose very many of you have, but the other hymn, which goes to the same tune, is right across the page. And this has become another one of my favorites. Oh, teach me what it meaneth that cross uplifted high, with one, the man of sorrows, condemned to bleed and die. Oh, teach me what it cost thee to make a sinner whole, and teach me, Savior, teach me the value of a soul. I began to pray the prayer of this hymn 
when I was a student in college and first learned this hymn. This was not one of those that we had sung at home. If you pray, oh, teach me what it meaneth, that cross uplifted high, what do you think God's answer is likely to be? Well, I think God is likely to do exactly what you ask. He is going to begin to teach you the meaning of the cross. The cross of Jesus is a symbol of suffering. Paul says that the cross appears to be foolishness to the world. He said the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. And in a world so desperately seeking power and money and fulfillment and fame and recognition and appreciation and wealth, to talk about the cross, that symbol of suffering, that instrument of torture and execution back in the days of the Roman Empire, that place of utter shame to our Lord Jesus. Well, it doesn't go over very big, does it? It's not likely to. The message of the cross was foolishness back in Paul's day. It will always appear to be foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are not on their way to heaven. But I have found the teaching of the cross, the answer to my prayer, to be the most comforting, the most wonderfully liberating thing. When I sin, I can look to the cross and know that all my sins, all of them, the very worst ones, even the deliberate ones, were taken by that Lamb of God. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. When I'm being misunderstood, I can remember that Christ himself was also misunderstood and taunted. And the last stanza of that hymn says, O infinite Redeemer, I bring no other plea, because thou dost invite me, I cast myself on thee. Because thou dost accept me, I love and I adore. Because thy love constraineth, I'll praise thee evermore. The sands of time are sinking, and oh, teach me what it meaneth. Hymns were such a vital part of Elizabeth's life. And hopefully you've been blessed by hearing about these great old hymns of the faith. The sands of time are sinking. Oh, teach me what it meaneth. Right now, let's uh, hear about one of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation current projects. What's been going on with the foundation? Well, Mike Cantrell and his wife and daughter, they live overseas, and they serve on projects throughout Europe, Africa, and the U.S. He's the technical media director, managing digital files for the Foundation podcast, YouTube channel, and website. Here's Mike Cantrell giving us a quick update. I'll mention one big project we're working on right now at the Foundation. Over the years, Elizabeth gave talks and lectures all over the world. At the time, the primary recording media for these talks was a cassette tape. And for the younger generation, each tape has two sides, and each side could record 30 or 45 minutes. And actually, this is a primary reason that many of her talks were often limited to 30 or 45 minutes. Many of those cassettes have now been collected by the Foundation. We have now over 600 cassette tapes, 
And that translates into about 1,200 talks. And we're in the process of digitizing and then editing those 600 cassettes. And we're regularly posting those talks both onto the website and into the podcast feed. Almost all of the talks have not been heard since they were originally presented by Elizabeth. Uh, By way of example, Cheryl Fortson, who works with the foundation, she's digitizing the cassettes. She attended a talk by Elizabeth on February 25th, 1996 in Athens, Georgia. And that talk was very meaningful to Cheryl, and she remembered it through all those following years. Well, Cheryl and I found the specific tape that was used to record that talk on that day. And Cheryl was just so blessed to hear that talk again, one that had been really meaningful to a young mother all those years ago. As we work through this project, I give many thanks to Cheryl and also to David Ede for giving their time and their talents to continue Elizabeth's legacy for future generations. Um, By the way, you can listen to that talk that blessed Cheryl by searching for the title, The Sin of Sloth, on our website. It's a good one. That was Mike Cantrell, Technical Media Director with the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, thanks for joining us and thanks for checking out elizabethelliot.org for more talks, devotionals, videos, and more. elizabethelliot.org. Lectures, 242 of those, 48 videos, 39 books, 127 newsletters, almost 150 weekly devotionals, over 1,600 Gateway to Joy programs, and a number of podcast episodes as well. The YouTube channel has uh, almost 50,000 subscribers, so thank you for uh, spreading the word. Until next time, may God remind you daily, you're loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms.